You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I've been reading this book. Uh, it's a good book. I'd recommend it. It's uh, a Christian book called Good and Angry by uh, David uh, Pallison. And uh, it talks about um, something that we all experience um, on a day-to-day basis, which is anger, like what we do when we don't get what we want. And it starts off with this like really like vivid, evoking story of this woman in the parking lot whose like face is creased with like stress and years of probably pain and you know stories that we don't know when we see strangers like that in the parking lot. And the author just shares about how angry that this mom is at the kid who just wants this candy bar. And she is doing all the kinds of things that, you know, you promised that you would never do that your mom used to do or that your dad used to do. And she's saying like wait till you see, wait till your dad gets home, you're going to be in trouble for this, and you're just a little brat, and you know, and, and um, the story kind of goes on and escalates from one thing to the next, from one degree to the next, and by the end of the story, she's, you know, saying that uh, she's going to like leave him in the parking lot and drive off without him and, and you know, screaming at him and uh, red in the face and all these th- types of things, and, and then he, uh, that's chapter one, and then he turns the page into chapter two, and uh, he identifies, you know, the anger that sometimes we feel and the anger that we have seen and witnessed when we're around uh, other human beings like us. Uh, and he makes this statement, which is kind of a, a gut punch. He says, you know, um, it's not just that some people have problems with anger, it's everybody has a problem with anger. That everybody's angry because uh, everybody um, is ultimately uh, trying to make a life apart from God, uh, apart from Christ, and be God in a way. And so um, it's not so much um, if we're angry, it's kind of what we do when we're angry that really counts, that really matters. Some of us are aggressive, blow-up kind of angry people, and everybody knows when we're angry. And some of us are just seething kind of beneath the surface with little passive-aggressive remarks and silent treatments that we run on people. And people maybe don't hear the anger, but they can certainly feel it when they're around us. Uh, And some of us are... um, sort of angry, and, and nobody really knows it because we've just given our anger to apathy, and we've got our little Zen garden, and we make our life so small we don't have, really have to risk any hurt at all, and we kind of mitigate and insulate from all different kinds of pain, and so anger in itself is a common human thing. It's just what we get, what we do when we don't get our way, and it responds in many different ways, and so the question is not, you know, are we angry? It is that we are. The question is, how do we aim our anger that matters most? And so, The problem that we have um, with reading scriptures like this and dealing um, with with God's wrath, with God's anger, whether it be in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is that we inevitably map our anger onto his. We take our experience of what we experience when we get angry and when we experience anger from others and we attribute the the qualities of our anger on God uh, in a way that um, makes him like us rather than considers what his image actually looks like. And so... um, and so the most important probably passage um, in all of uh, the Old Testament, which is mentioned several times about the character of God, says this in Exodus 34, 6 about God's anger, that God's anger is not like ours. Uh, the passage starts, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. And here are some of the key, like, linchpin characteristics of, of who the Lord is, even outside of his anger. But it says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. If you want to know who he is, what his character is like, this is what he'll be known by. He is, one, compassionate, like a womb, like a mother towards a child. If a kid gets up in the middle of the night crying, she's not, you know, like, um, vengeful against the kid. Uh, She is compassionate towards the kid. There's a compassion in our God. 
that he is gracious, that he sees a level of favor. Grace just means a, a kind of, you would see a gem and, and, and choose it as better among the, the rest. It's a favor, and there's a grace that rests on his people, that he has grace towards his people. And then it says this, that he's not quick to anger like most of us. He's not, like if he's angry, it's not like he wasn't angry two seconds ago, and now all of a sudden, two seconds later, he just like got triggered, you know? Like, our God has a settled disposition about things. He moves in one direction at a time. He's not flustered. And so when he, when he goes about something he's against, which is essentially what anger is, when he decides what he's against, he sets his face against that thing, and he moves with persistence and consistency. He's not flitty in his, in his anger. He's not pouty. He's not um, capricious in the anger. And so he moves in a singular direction. And out of all that, he's abounding in the greater attribute here with love and faithfulness. And so the author's challenge, I think, is pretty apt here, is that really if anger... Uh, is, is, is what it is that you're against, if you are not angry, then what are you for? Right? In other words, um, yes, God is angry. God gets angry. But his anger is not like ours. His anger is not, is not my will be done, it's thy will be done. His anger is not about ego, it's about justice. It's about bringing shalom and peace into the nations. And who, what kind of a God would he be if he wasn't about that business, if he wasn't rolling up his sleeves to set his face, flint, towards that direction to bring heaven to earth? That's the anger, that's the engine that moves him forward, that he is, he is uh, productive and constructive in his anger, not thy will, or not my will be done, but thy will. That's how Jesus lived on this earth. Second, that he's slow, not quick. He's slow to anger. And as you guys read in the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, as soon as somebody would turn, he would show quick to mercy, right? Many of us are slow or are fast to anger, slow to mercy. And you gotta go sit in the doghouse for six months before I let you back in, Right? But God's not like that. He is slow to anger. And then the minute that something turns, he's quick to mercy. And lastly, that our God is not a payback anger. He's a putback anger. He's not retributive. He's restorative. And he does what's not fair on his own account to bring about the kingdom here in our midst. And so the reason why we, we have trouble with the anger of God is because we see and describe his anger as if it's ours, but it's not. He's not angry, angry like we are. He is slow to anger. He is put back anger, not get back anger. He is justice, not ego oriented. And so his anger is different from our anger. And so the, the, uh, the words that you'll see in Romans 1 that Sophie so bravely wrote, read a moment ago, um, the wrath of God, the anger of God is uh, manifested um, in, in a phrase that appears three different times in the back end of Romans chapter one, the phrase handed over. They were handed over. They were handed over. They were handed over. And so um, I, I, you could do a little bit of an inventory on your own. These are just three movies that I thought about, about famous uh, deaths of villains, okay, in famous movies. And so uh, the first one I was thinking about was, was uh, Scar. You guys have seen The Lion King before? Have you ever noticed that when villains die in movies, they often die by their own evil. They fall on their own sword. So I, I watched it back, three minutes on the, on, on the real live and on the cartoon. Scar does a judo lunge at Simba at the end of the scene. And Simba, in self-defense, does like a barrel roll and MMA's Scar like off the cliff, right? But Scar doesn't die from falling off the cliff. What happens to him? I love that this is a discussion now, right? We're having a straight Socratic sermon. So 
He had, in previous scenes, sold the hyenas out, saying that it was the hyenas' fault why the Pride Lands had gone got away. And so what happens, the poetic justice kills Scar in the sense that Simba doesn't kill him, he kills himself. Second one I thought of is Darth Vader. So this is a spoiler alert, but look, if you haven't seen a movie since the 80s, I don't know what to tell you, right? <laughs> Epic scene. He comes to the light, the bright, the, he comes to the light, he comes to the good force side, and he protects Luke from the impending you know, deadly blow of the emperor, right? So he's, he suicides himself to save his son. This is the ending of the story for, for Darth Vader, and has that crazy ventilator speech where he tells Luke that he's his father. Dies by his own sword. Last one, Master Shredder in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 89 version, right? He tears through. Who kills, who kills, who kills Shredder? It's not Leonardo Donatello and Michelangelo. It's Master Splinter. And he had that rat chained up into a dungeon. He was like beating Master Splinter up till you're like, oh, that guy's going to get it. So the ending of the movie is that Splinter doesn't kill Shredder. You guys are seeing where I'm going with this. Is that he has Shredder hanging. And how many times have you seen this? Die Hard? I mean, it's, yeah, I can't think of a movie that doesn't do this. Is the nunchucks are wrapping up the spear and Shredder's hanging on by his dear life. And then the villain, like, this is just classic. This is what makes you a villain. Is that you're hanging on from dear life and even from your last breath, you take this little knife thing and you like threaten and try and like swipe, right? That's not what you do if you're a villain. Just I'm giving you gospel advice not to do that. And so then Splinter has to let go of the other side of the nunchuck, and then it just falls into the dump truck and, you know, into the garbage truck and gets squashed. So what's the lesson here? Is that, <laughs> is that in, the, in the poetic justice kind of way, evil ends up killing itself. And so when you look at the, the passage in, in Romans, what, what it's saying about the manifestation about the anger of God, there's like a, a chilling good, I think, like... Uh, fearful thing that needs to like take over honestly the church of an understanding of like a god who's rightfully angry about the way that things go on down here is that his anger doesn't manifest in lightning bolts and in you know these great tornadoes or even these you know great diseases necessarily that anger just basically looks like god saying do whatever the heck you want then like one one commentator said it's like it's like a boat that's getting pulled off of a current and not only is it getting pulled off the current, but there's just people just screaming on the boat like, let us go, let us go, let us go. My will be done, not your will be done. My will be done, not your will be done. And so the anger of God is just, have it your way. That they were handed over to the things that they wanted, right? And so in the Old Testament, if you look at it, it's like, yeah, there's a big flood that comes. But when you see the way that the flood is pronounced and like described in Genesis 8 or 9 or whatever that is, the way that the flood lines increase is that the Bible is specific to note the very things that were created in Genesis 1 and 2 were decreated through the flood. In other words, it's saying like because the daughters of men and, and the Nephilim and, and all the crazy wickedness that was going on in that land, he's, he's saying, if you want to uncreate what I created, then you can have it your way. There's these prophets of, of, of Korah, you know, in the book of Numbers where they're like complaining to Moses and trying to steal authority from the prophet and they're complaining about, well, they should have been in Egypt because this land's barren and there isn't any milk and honey. You promised me milk and honey and how can we need it, right? And it's not just that they drop down dead, it's that the earth swallows them up because have your way. The, the common, right, uh, uh, narrative within the Old Testament where the Israelites are led into Babylonian captivity and God uses um, 
you know, Assyrians and Babylonians to come and attack the Israelite people. Is, it, what's the statement being made there? If you want their idols so bad, then go live with them. Have it your way, right? So the wrath of God is not this like, you know, vindictive, chasing you down like a little, you know, like a cat and a mouse trying to catch you and doing something. He's letting you do what you want and letting it unravel you. That's what you want. That's the consequence. Like if you want death, then you can have it that way. That's what's been, that's what's been promised, right? And so, um, and so this is important because what Romans 1 is basically saying to us is, is, that, is that the nature of the wrath of God is not a picky IRS agent trying to find that last little speck of the one little thing that you did because you did everything else right. Like, it's not a picture of God looking through a microscope. It's a picture of man looking through blindfolds. It's a picture of, it's a picture of idolatry is not just doing wrong, but it's the ability of man and woman to recreate what's right and wrong and redefine it. I'll say that again, is that human beings not only have the ability, because we think of sin as like the thing I know that I shouldn't do and then I do it, but it's saying that the real cancer of sin is not just that we know what's wrong and then we do it, it's that we know what's wrong, do it, and then say it's right. That's iniquity. That's redefining what's right. So here's, so I had, you know, there's a kid that you went to high school with, and his world, even though it was made up of 12 people, was his world, and in his world, the thing that mattered most was the college resume. That's what mattered most, right? So it was about the tennis lessons to do this, and it was about the foreign language thing to do this, and it was about the extracurriculars to do this, and it was about the SAT scores and the classes that went into it, right? So that's, I mean, right alone, like, without Sabbath, without rest, without balance, like, that's not a good thing. But here's also the other powerful thing, is that the parent and the culture within that home was able to tell that kid that anyone that didn't do that was lazy, and that anyone that was telling them anything different than that resume is the king of your life is a liar. And that kid wouldn't have known the difference. And so the idea is, it's not just we have idols, but we insulate ourselves from anyone that would tell us we're wrong. You could be a victim, and you create a whole entire narrative about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, and then all that it would take is to get a bunch of people together that believe that with you, and then you could insulate yourself from anyone else that would tell you any different. And so the idolatry thing is more powerful than just doing wrong. It's redefining what actual right and wrong is. It creates a sense of spiritual blindness. But the good news of the gospel in this is that the opening verse of this passage, which is the wrath of God is revealed, is sandwiched between Romans 1 and Romans 3, which is the point of this gospel is not to reveal the wrath of God, but to reveal the righteousness of God. That the point of this passage and the point of all the gospel is not to to bring up sin so that Jesus might be the judge. What does Jesus say in John 3, 16? They come to judge the world and condemn it, but to save it. But there is a judgment for sin, but that's not where we live right now, right? We live right now under, or the church doesn't, but the creation does, under a rightful, angry God who is for righteousness and against sin because otherwise, how could he be good, okay? And, and so Jesus and the gospel as it's presented here is not coming as a, as a judge, but as a doctor, I'm 38 years old. I went to my yearly checkup. My doctor's asking me questions I don't want to talk about and poking me with stuff I'm not interested in right now, right? There's a point when you're 38 and you see friends go down different paths and you see your own mortality and you see the years trimming away and you see what matters most that you're more invested in what's healthy than what's comfortable. You would rather be healed. 
So the gospel does not come to condemn us. It brings up sin in the name of not just revealing wickedness, but to reveal righteousness, that we would be healed. And so I think that's really important as we look at this passage. It's kind of like the gospel is power. It's not talk. It's, it's for all and not some. It's for anyone that would believe. And it's not just the ABCs of faith. It's everything in between. And so let us look at passages like this like continually to see that this is our past and not our future. This is our past and not our present. And God has not come to, today to be a judge or a police officer to be a doctor. That we would come into moments like this and come into prayer and come into reflections like this and sermons like this that we would be healed today in his name. All right, so we'll walk through um, some passages in Romans 1, Romans 1 here that Sophie read, and then we'll get into Romans 3. Here it is, Romans 1, starting at 18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are, are without excuse. This is what a you know, commentary or a systematic theology book is gonna say is divine revel- or is, uh, is a common revelation. It's the ability to know that any army buddy that betrays his friend and lets the friend take a bullet for him rather than taking a bullet for the friend, every, every culture, doesn't take Chinese, French, Italian, every culture knows the difference between right and wrong. Everyone knows what virtue is. Everyone knows what humility is. Everybody knows what pride. Every culture has a word for that. And so it's not that we're ignorant, right? It's that we're insolent and that we cover our eyes and we cover our ears and there's no victims in sin and there's no innocent people in sin and there's no people that didn't choose. No, everybody chooses this thing. Everybody chooses what sin is. And here's what, here's what it, it gets down to in terms of the heart of sin is that sin is a symptom, but the core of sin is really idolatry. Before there's any sin, there's idolatry. So here's verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him or gave thanks. They glorified other things. They gave thanks to other things. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. He'll go on to say, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. My dad used to have this little theory like, I know how to fix the world. We'll just get tutors into the prison systems and just use prison as remediation places where we can teach people how to read and give people the education they never had, and education can solve the world. How many of you guys know of some really smart serial killers? It's because it doesn't start in the head. It starts in the heart, and we don't see with our eyes. We see with our heart because we see what we want to see. It's where the heart heart is where we actually see things, and it says because of our idolatry, we are handed over to a darkened heart. We are not seeing the full picture. In, In other words, it's saying you are looking at a world through a skewed lens. You are not seeing clearly. To the extent that the heart is pure, you can see clearly. To the part that your heart is not pure, you are not seeing. You are not even observing what's really happening in, in the thing around you. you. You are blind, even though you think you see. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of immortal gods for images made to look like mortal human beings and animals and reptiles. And so what this passage is saying is that the stuff you see on CNN, the racism and the killing and the murders and the grotesque, bitterness and rivalry between parties and, and, and cultural classes and wars and all these other things. Like, all of those things, what he's saying, is not being caused by bad stuff. It's actually be, being caused by good stuff being made God. Like, our biggest enemy is not, you know, guns, gun control. It's not cell phones are causing our kids to lose their focus, and it's not bad teachers and bad taxes and bad lives. Like, our biggest enemy is not our society. It's us. 
The human heart. This is what he's saying is our biggest enemy. Apple phones. Kids' education programs. Spouses. The spouses we want and the spouses we have. Our kids, like, our desire to be approved of, our ambition, like, the, thing, the reason why the world ain't as it should be is not because of bad things, it's because of good things made God. That's the reason why it's broken. This is, this is his thing. And so if you ever noticed before, is that if you ask the average person, are most people good? Most of the time, Christians and non-Christians will say, yeah, most people are good. But then you show them the news and you say, but is the world bad or good? Most people say the world is bad. Which I'll just bring that up as a debate topic. How could people be so good, but the world is so bad? What are we missing? Is there just like a bad fairy that comes in while we're sleeping, just makes all this bad stuff happen while we're sleeping? It's like, there must be something wrong with this, right? And I think the problem is, is because we equated niceness with goodness. Niceness is not the same thing as goodness. Because listen, you could have a really cool activist with the next slogan and the next thing to do. You could have a really successful business person that knows how to do the next thing and win the friends. And you could have lots of people doing lots of great things. But here's the question. It's not whether or not people are nice to you. The question is, is what happens when you attack their idol? How are they going to act towards you if you corner them? What comes out of something? This is what goodness really is. It's not, it's not like, hey, did they pay their taxes and mow their lawn and good to their... Everybody's being nice when their idol's being served. Attack their idol, see what happens. Attack their comfort, see what happens. Attack their, their reputation and see what happens. The problem is not bad things. It's good, it's good things being made God. And idolatry makes us blind and then redefine the rule book for everybody else, right? So the gospel has not come to change behavior but to heal hearts. It's come to heal hearts. It's not come to make, you know, mean people nice. It's come to make dead people alive. It's a serious spiritual transaction that happens when someone is born again. Okay, and so I just want to show you this little tree in terms of just like personal reflection. Um, and so some of you guys are going to be able to see this better than others, but I'm going to walk it through. This comes out of a Gospel Saturation, a book by Jeff Vandersvelt. And he just talks about why and how the gospel does a deeper work than just like stop sinning. Because sin is a symptom. Like sin isn't the problem. Lordship is the problem. Do you guys remember when Paul opened up in this letter? What does he say the gospel is? The gospel is not Jesus loves you. The gospel is not even Jesus saves you. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Because as long as Jesus is not Lord, I have no hope of being the righteousness of Christ, right? Jesus has to be Lord. That's what he came to do and came to be, not to save us into heaven or save us from bad, you know, political leaders or save us from debt or save us from, like he came to save us from our hearts devoted to things that want to be masters and mistresses over our life, to become the only king uh, that ruled with the heart of the Father. So, so, so this, is the, this is the exercise, is it's seeing the fruit that came out of my life that does not look like the fruit of the Spirit and recognize that Jesus didn't come to just change my action. He came to heal my heart. So the little anger book, which is great, one of the best things that I take out of if you don't go get the book, is just ask yourself. Anger is good because it's showing you what you love. And underneath that question, if you stop long enough to ask why I'm angry and don't just say, well, because they're a jerk, but instead ask the question, what did I want? Because anger, people don't get angry about things that they don't want. If you're 15 minutes late to a meeting and you didn't want to go to the meeting anywhere, you're not angry. It's because it's the look on the boss's face and what it might mean to you for your reputation, 
All that you work for and the credit that you're not getting, there we're getting somewhere. Now we're seeing who's Lord. This is not an incidental thing. This is, a, this is a fruit that comes out of a root. So the little chart goes all the way through, you know. On the repentance side, what does it look like to stop the desire for control, fear, anxiety, worry? I'm not, this is the belief system. Who am I? I'm not in control, but I believe I have to be. I believe he stopped loving me because of this event. I've lost control of what's going on with my children, and there it is. He's abandoned me. Jesus is not Lord. I don't trust him. He's not with me. He doesn't empathize with me as though he's never been tempted before or tested, like Hebrew says. He's not for me. I'm abandoned. He's an absentee landlord or he's a vicious tyrant, but he's not my savior in that one area of life. And the perpetual nature of gospel saturation is repenting back into truth, not just changed behavior, but actual gospel truth. Who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. So my boss is not. And my kids are not. And whatever is going on in the news is not Lord. He is loving. He is powerful. He's in control. All these types of I am statements, he is statements. He's loving, powerful, in control. Jesus died for me. He rose again from the dead. He has victory over my sin, and he's put the spirit of God in me. I am the righteousness of Christ in manifestation because of the empty tomb of Easter. I'm loved. I'm not alone. I'm more than a conqueror through him. That's what peace is. That's what joy is. That's what love is. I'm happy to send that or email that for anybody that might want it in the future, but Romans 1.24 says this. Moving on. The gave over part. Therefore, he gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised, amen. So there's, there's a structure here of, of three handing overs, okay? And so he, he gives the diagnosis, the diagnostic in 25. The problem's not sin, the real problem's idolatry. The gospel didn't come to fix behavior, it came to heal hearts and restore the king on the throne in our heart. So verse 26 says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Now, the reason why uh, Paul addresses in the next two chunks the issue of homosexuality in Romans chapter one is not because it's at the top of this list of all the other types of sins to make this one the biggest, baddest one, so let me just rip into this one right quick. And it's not even because it would have been prolific in the Roman government and to the Roman culture and society and it would have been a relevant topic, so hook them with this one little thing. The reason why this is is because the very, one of the very first things that's created in Genesis chapter 2, once the creation is created, in terms of the order of the way that humanity engages itself, one of the first things that God makes for man and for woman is marriage. And so what he's getting at here is not the severity, but the order and the precedence, really, of what was created. If you look at you know, the different uh, verses in verse um, 18 and verse 31, uh, 31, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no mercy. It, it, it's it's um, in, in, back in uh, verse 18, which was uh, read earlier, uh, it's coming, the wrath of God is coming against Godlessness, and it's coming uh, because, of, because of wickedness and because um, the vision of God was not plain to them. In other words, he is showing kind of like the picture I shared earlier with Noah, the uncreation of things. He's showing the decreation of the very first thing that God created, which is sexuality, Right? That, that marriage is defined as a man and a woman uh, becoming one uh, to enjoy uh, God and one another in fellowship and rule and reign on, on his behalf. And so he's picking this thing almost like an Instagram caption, right? It's a picture, a picture rather, an Instagram picture. And then underneath it, he goes through and he kind of dissects it. He diagnoses it and then he dissects it into this like explanation of what's going on in a picture like that. 
That's why the picture is put up. So anyways, back to Romans uh, verse uh, yeah, 26. I'll start with that. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations um, for unnatural ones. And the women were inflated with lust with, for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received themselves a due penalty for error. Therefore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So from the heart comes the mind. So that they did whatever um, was not ought to have been done. Verse 29, they become filled with all kinds of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity, and they are full, full of murder, envy, strife, and deceit. So here's the template. I'm gonna give the template and read it through. But what's happening is he's showing you a cascading effect of where sin starts and where it ends. And what he's essentially saying is by the time you see sin in your hands, you know it's already been through your mind. It didn't just, your hands don't just automate themselves. And before a sin has ever entered your mind, it's because you haven't seen things the right way and that the sin in my hands cannot be separate or abstract from the sin in my mind and the sin in my mind actually originated from the sin in my heart. Right? So think, look, at, look at the category. So he starts with this really high category and he says, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. So that's the heart category. Like that's what it looks like to be depraved. We're not as bad as we could be, but we certainly aren't as good as we should be. And we don't have complete fruits of the Spirit, right? So, so the depraved heart results in the depraved mind. Then it says, look, so then because they have wickedness, greed, and depravity in here, they have envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice up here. So where does all this stuff come from? Then it says, look, oh, the gossip, right? When you're talking about so-and-so and you're stating your case against theirs and waiting for, you know, the after-the-party party to go talk about the person that you really should have, would have said to them. That gossip, it's not just random, right? It's coming out of something. There's, it's a symptom of a deeper source. They're slanderers. They're God-haters. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God and their right and his righteous decree, and they know that this deserves death, they now continue to do these things, but they redirect and reapprove what right and wrong is and approve of those who practice them. The sin that starts in the heart will move to the head, and the sin that moves to the head will move to the hands. And so any sin that's in my hands started in my heart. It's not just a random abstraction or, or a coincidence that sin happens in my life. It comes from a root. All fruit comes from a root. So uh, I, uh, I have this relationship with um, cockroaches. Um, I, I, did, I didn't know that cockroaches were as bad as they were. I should have had more respect for them until I got married to Cairo. We actually, um, when we were dating in high school, um, her parents took us on this vacation, and I was, like, sleeping in that little, like, cot bed that they, like, wheel out for, like, the in-law or whatever on that little mattress that, like, gives everybody a back injury. And apparently, I just woke up, and it was like Princess and the Pea. They're like, how'd you sleep? And I was like, I slept great. And they're like, oh, we couldn't sleep. We got to move hotels. There's cockroaches swimming all over this place. You know, there's, like, cockroaches. We saw six cockroaches. And me, I don't know if it's because I'm coming from New York and it's like all these palmetto bugs down here, but I was just like, I don't know, spiders, cockroaches, who cares? Like, I'm just like, whatever. Apparently, they're like swimming around. She's like, and Kyra and her mom are like, we cannot be sleeping in a place with cockroaches. And I'm just like, you guys are being overreactive. Until uh, 2005, got married, got a cute little 400 square foot little apartment down on Curtin Street off of Augusta Road. And... uh, it was just shabby chic in there, man. We like painted stripes on our couch 
And uh, I had gotten these, uh, these sticks, these bamboo sticks down there on a custard road and like wrapped them up with Christmas lights, put them in the corner real like, it was like some Bonnie Vare album was playing and I thought it was really great, you know? And so uh, real chill. And, uh, and so I still have the video. I had like wheeled it, you know, the little bamboo sticks in the little trash can and I pulled the bamboo sticks, ch- chopped them down and like wrapped them all up in my house and was having a great time just being newly married in Augusta Road, Curtin Avenue, all that stuff. I woke up uh, that next morning and just felt like, um, <laughs> just felt just these little, little paintbrushes just right here. I mean, it was like a, the size of a kitten. Like it, it was literally the biggest overweight cockroach I had ever seen. I shot up so, like, boom. Like, I was just, went into my karate mode. Bam. I went over here like this. Swah! Like that. And I took my little Air Jordan shoe out of my closet, and I triple killed that thing. I You know, like a combo in Mortal Kombat. Just no mercy on that thing. I was like, send it where it came from. You know, it's like... The experience is, like, that's, here's what you have, like, I had to understand. I'm just a, a naive little boy, you know? Like, every cockroach you see is a hundred other cockroaches, right? That's what you're doing. You're doing math there. And so, I, gosh, I just go on rants right now about all the cockroach stories, but for the sake of the gospel. <laughs> it's like, the picture that Paul is painting is there's no incidental sin. Every time you see, like, if you were to see you know, little symptoms that, that, would, that would tell you about cancer, like in your physical body, you take that seriously because you know it doesn't take but a spot. Like it's a funny spot, just a little mole. But what he's saying is that sin is not like a headache that just goes away, it's a cancer. And every little sin that you're seeing, like you realize how much like social contract we have and social pressures and peer pressures we have to not be sinful? And to think that even against all those social external pressures, they're still like rearing evil things that come up out of our hearts and our minds. You think how much you see that comes up above the surface that like shows you like what might be in the heart. But church, the point of this gospel, again, is not to, to, to give us a revelation of his wrath. The sandwich of Romans 1 and Romans 3 is to show the bad news in light of the good news so that we would not just understand the wrath of God, we're here to understand the righteousness of Christ that's ours. In other words, this list is being read to us, if you're in Christ, as a list that it's about your past and not about your present or about your future. He that knew new sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of Christ, that no one would boast and that all of this stuff would come from grace to realize this is who I, who I was without him, but that is not who I am in him. So this is what it says in Romans 3. We have to keep in view. This is why it's important to read large chunks of Scripture from left to right to get distance and depth, to understand the full picture of what Paul is saying. The reason why Paul is writing this letter is not to tell you about wrath, but to tell you about righteousness. Verse, chapter 3, verse 21 is where this picks up. But now apart from the law, it says, The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Like the reason why he's writing this it's the analogy I'll continue using in this series. It's like the law, the 613 codes, the 10 commandments, they were, they were helpful 
in revealing the sin of Israel and holding them tight so they wouldn't branch out too far into all types of harmfulness and depravity, but the cast can't heal the arm, it can only hold it. And what you had in this church was a Jewish group that believed that that cast, because you couldn't see into the arm, actually made the arm healed, but it couldn't heal anything. Because whether it was Jewish or Gentile, whether it was Abraham or Abimelech that Abraham dealt with, is that the healing can only happen from one thing, through the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God had to come to do what the law could not do. That the Spirit of God could come into a person and actually not just change a person's past, but to change a person's actual identity, like who they are. And so this is the idea, is that this salvation, it doesn't happen by a bunch of laws or following the rules or changing the behavior. The same way as Jesus put a hand on a shriveled arm and healed it, that is the same kind of miracle that he would have to do in our heart. That he would have to heal our heart from the inside out through the spirit and no cast and no accountability group and no check boxes and no, you know, book by Renee Brown or anything else is gonna fix that except for the power of God in your heart to change you. It is a power thing, not a word thing, not a talk thing. And so there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all stuck. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely. That word justified, it gets a bit, it's, it's not just pardon. Justified literally means that you traded your life for Jesus' life, that he was handed over to Romans. He was handed over sin and suffered the consequences that we deserved. And so there isn't just, I want Jesus' heaven, but I don't want his likeness. I don't want his family. I don't want his, I don't want his wisdom. I don't want his mind. I don't want his scripture. I don't want his loss. Like there's no such thing as having part of Jesus. It's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're dead or you're not, or you're righteous or not. That's all there is to it. And you either get all of Jesus or you get none of it. And so if you are in Jesus, you are not an American citizen. You're a citizen of heaven. If you are in Jesus, you are not given to your socioeconomic class. You are given to the family of God, which is described as gifts. You are all of it or none of it. And Jesus says that he who knew new sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he became as we were so that we might become as he is. We are the sequel to his life. It's better that he's gone because he has 120 people that are the righteousness of Christ, no matter what their behavior is saying or what they think about themselves or whether they know they're saved. None of that changes if they have a heartbeat in Christ. If you are alive in Christ today, you can only manifest the fruits of the Spirit. And no matter what law you would have had around you, it wouldn't have made the difference because the Spirit will fulfill the law better than any law can. God did what the law could not do by completing righteousness in us, by justifying us. By how much? How much did it cost us? Freely. By his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. Listen, 26. And so this is the way that we read Romans 1 now. We don't read it as stuff that, right, stuff that people die for, stuff that God kills for. We read that list as stuff that Jesus died for. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so the cross, the picture of the cross, sometimes with skewed theology and a a warped picture of what anger is in terms of who God is becomes for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. But that's not what the scripture says. Scripture says that God is against sin because he is for righteousness and that he loves the world and he loved the world so much that he gave his only son 
that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. And so this is, this, is what we, this is what this means when it comes to the way that we think about sin in the world and, and, and sin in here and sin in our hearts is that sin to us is no longer the stuff it used to be, but it's no longer the stuff that God kills for. It's the stuff that Jesus died for. That my sin brings a sorrow and a sadness, but it never brings any shame or condemnation. Because that sin, at least at bare minimum, becomes the price and the cost that Jesus paid for me to live in. And if not, it changed it from a chain that used to shackle me into slavery into a thread that I can repent into, that I can find healing in my heart. It becomes an opportunity, not a threat. And so every time I drive down the road now and there's sin that creeps up into my head and creeps into my hands, and creeps, it used to bring about a shame. That's the thing about a good doctor. You know, when you go to the doctor, you're like afraid to use the all the like body parts and all the things that are going on and you want to use like little middle school terms and they just say it, they don't even flinch. A lot of them are just like, yeah, I know, you're a body part. I get it, we all have body parts. Like, there's just a world of like, God's not impressed with sin. He's not surprised by sin. He has wrath for sin because he knows exactly what it is and he knows exactly where it came from. And better yet, he knows exactly what to do about it. And so anytime that a sin comes, this is the difference between the gospel and religion is the religion says, if you have sin, then hide it. Pretend it didn't happen. Call it something else. Redefine the language. But the gospel didn't come for us to just ignore sin. The gospel came for us to be healed of it, that we would confess our sins and be healed. Do you want to be healed? At some point, you come to that altar and realize that the cost of my comfort is not worth the joy of my healing. And I want to live a healed life. I don't want to live a, a comfortable life. I want to be healed. And so there's no surprise here. Like when Jesus looks at this stuff, there is no shame. There is no guilt. This is an opportunity for me to be healed in his name. Every time that I see sin in my hands, I get to see and evaluate through prayer, like renew my mind. What is it that I wanted? And not only did I sin, but why did I do that? Oh, it's because I don't believe he's Lord in this area. I think that there's something else, a better master, a better mistress that's better than him. Oh, it's an opportunity to get, to get saved. It's an opportunity to see righteousness come into my life. It's an opportunity to be sanctified. It's an opportunity to get healing. Like these things are not on accident and they're not threats. They're opportunities that come into the gospel and are inviting us into the revelation of righteousness, not as wrath. That he so loved the world that he gave his only son that he did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And so this is what's true of me, and this is what's true of you. And um, I'll close with this. I'll invite the band to come forward and prayer, prayer team to come forward uh, as we close up for, for the scripture. But this is from a um, commentary that I read that I think is just brilliant to explain what is true of us now in Christ, as the righteousness of Christ, the list in Romans 1 is no longer true of us. It represents our past, what we were saved from, but not our present and not our future, what we are saved into. And so this is what is true of you, whether you feel like it or not, act like it or not, this is true of you. You are the, you are the nature of Christ in 2022, in Christ. For the pleasure of God is being revealed from heaven upon all the godlessness, or all the godliness and all the righteousness of the people in this room who by their righteousness celebrate the truth. The fact that you're not even tuned out and mad at me, right, at this sermon, is because the Spirit's been with you 
and he's sanctified you by his truth the way that Jesus asked him to before he died. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. For because, you know, because they know God, they honor him as God. Like it's just even a thing. That's a gift right now that as we stand and sing with something other than fear, if there's affection in your heart, it's been a gift, not a reward to you. And that you can actually see God for who he is. The pure in heart will actually see God before heaven. They'll see him now in their Monday through Friday. For because they know God, they honor him as God and they give thanks to him and they are fruitful in their thinking and humble in their hearts and actually enlightened. Having become fools for Christ, they become wise. That's what he calls you. Those that fear the Lord, those that hear him and obey him, they're wise in him. And that's what he's done in you. You didn't do it, he did it. And received the glory of the mortal God and saw his glory in mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, that's the sad part about it is that they gave glory to the created things. You know whose glory that was? It was partially his, but it was partially ours. We were the image of God in the garden. We had glory in our hands and we gave it to things that we could build. Therefore, God is restoring the desires of their hearts for purity to the honoring of their bodies among themselves because they gladly received the truth about God instead of lies and they worshiped and served not the creature, but the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And for this reason, God is restoring their desires. It's not just changing what they did, but changing what they wanted. Changes their heart, the lights and passions. The women glory in their husbands and the men likewise revel in their wives and they're consumed with passion for them, honoring the marriage bed and receiving the due reward for their obedience. Come on, that's what we need, like restoration, not just in politics, but like in the homes starting into the homes, into the hearts of the fathers and the mothers and the churches and the sisters. And the, like in the home is where it starts. And since they saw fit to acknowledge God, God is restoring and renewing their minds to do what ought to be done. He's healing you even though you don't know it. You're, you're having surgery even though you're even asleep to it. They're filled with all manner of righteousness and goodness and contentment and benevolence because of what he did because he rose over that grave and put sin under his feet and death under his feet and all those things have no no more claim on our present and future. They are full of gratitude for others' gifts, brotherly love, peace, truth-telling, and all virtue. They are edifiers, encouragers, lovers of God. This is him talking about you right now. Courteous, meek, humble, inventors of good, obedience to, obedient to their parents, wise, faithful, compassionate, and merciful. They know God's decree that those who practice such things faith, in faith will receive eternal life that starts right now. And not only do they practice them, but they encourage others to do the same. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.